say you have an artist and they're doing a $50,000 development deal and the publisher signs that deal without a real strategy of how they're going to create opportunities for that writer. And some publishers, I think it's fair to say, will go out, give somebody $50,000 and they'll just collect the revenues that that artist or that writer generates off their own steam and they don't necessarily add anything to that process. Whereas sometimes you look at it and you go, well, hang on a second, if, if this passive publisher is willing to offer 50 and do nothing, then if we actually have objectives and we have a really compelling international network and we have opportunities like BMG's Sound Lab camps, which we can probably go into later, um, and a track record of having incredible international sync uh, activity, then, yeah, if we value it at 70, the thing is it's a safer bet at 70 for BMG than it would be for a, for a more passive competitor at 50 because we actually have the, the necessary means to plug that writer into to generate revenue. So for me, I've never been worried about a publishing advance at BMG. Welcome to Fear at the Top, powered by the Industry Observer, where we speak to leaders of music business to learn about their successes, mistakes, and how they operate at the top of their class. Welcome to Fear at the Top, powered by the Industry Observer. You're with Luke Gerges, and today we are at the BMG offices with Managing Director Heath Johns. Heath, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you, Luke. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for your time. So, look, we full disclosure, Heath is probably one of my most trusted friends in the music industry, um, and this is something I've been looking forward to for a long time. Um, Heath, I want to just ask you about the offices first. They are freaking awesome. Thank you. So, how much? Just tell me how how much did you did you just get this place like this, or how much energy <laughs> went, how much energy went no, into we, it? We did not wake up like this. That's for sure. <laughs> Uh, yeah, look, it, it was, it's, been, it's been a journey and I guess in order for us to properly describe the, the lineage of the space, you kind of need to go a little bit back in the BMG story. So I came on board, we were, we were looking for a really interesting creative environment where artists could really feel like they could be themselves. Um, one of the challenges with my initial role at, at BMG was working out of the Penguin Random House space in North Sydney, um, which is a which is a really great office. But it's and a, and sorry, when was that? This would have been January last year. So I was sort of uh, coming over to to BMG under the cover of darkness. Um, our parent company Bertelsmann also owns Penguin Random House, so they just positioned me there while I set about building the business. Um, it was a, it was a great space, but again, North Sydney's not exactly the uh, the the music hub of New South Wales. So um, I was looking for a for a location for the office, and obviously we were we were pretty keen on making sure that the building had some really good creative facilities, and uh, it was really important to me that we had these soundproof sound labs uh, that we're sitting in now for for artists and producers and writers to to create music in um but again that sort of posed a number of challenges and in a lot of ways the 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 wish list was almost impossible so so we engaged a, a property scout and we said look we want somewhere that in a lot of ways is the ultimate anti-office uh we don't want any white kind of melamine glossy furniture uh everything has to be as sort of 
as uh, interesting as possible and, and, and really try and avoid that predictable office environment because in my experience it was really a situation where a lot of the time an artist uh, would walk into to an office that I'd been in in the past and they'd walk in, they'd make a snap judgment, be it positive or negative. So we had to sort of stack the cards in our favour that when we bring an artist up here they feel like they're in a, a comfortable environment where they can be creative and be free. So you saw the um, aesthetic of the offices as integral to growing the business. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so you know, my philosophy with the office build was that in a lot of ways it's a, it's a retail environment and, and we want people to come in, whether it's someone like yourself, whether it's an artist, whether it's an attorney, whether it's a potential staff member to walk into this office and have an, feel an immediate level of comfort. Um, and you know, there are different ways that you can achieve that. I, I hope, I hope we've, we've, I hope we're there. Um, your positive words, uh, are, are pretty inspiring and we haven't had a, had a lot of people up here, um, so far. So yeah, I'm definitely feeling hypersensitive about it. So any positive messages that people <laughs> want to throw my way, I'll, I'll take them. So why haven't you had that many people up here? It seems to me like you launched this um, at least from the outside, it seems like BMG has been very aggressive. You, you quiet mm. Alberts, you made these massive artist signings, you did all these like big um, aggressive plays, but didn't it didn't seem like, like short of like the fi- Australian Financial Review yeah. article I read, or mm. like it didn't seem like there was any sort of announcement about it. So, so why is that? Well, that was really a conscious effort, and and from my perspective, there were there were a number of key events in BMG's evolution. Um, so if you trace back to January, forming the company in Australia, uh, we, we really wanted to make sure that when we announced the company, we had a couple of big signings. Um, uh, I was quite conscious of it being an empty announcement. Um, so it was around mid-March that we brought in uh, the Living End and Wolfmother deals, which were um, obviously, from my perspective, quite important deals for the company in that they were significant on a creative level, but also on a revenue level. Um, and we knew that making that announcement to the industry would signify BMG's seriousness in this market. Um, in a lot of ways, it was it was important that we launched in a meaningful way. And I, I just I was really conscious of a big press release in January. BMG's here. This is what we're doing. Heath's running the company. Isn't he great? Um, and then potentially having a bit of a lag before we announce something. So on a strategic level, I wanted to say not only are we here, but we're already making movements. Um, And then beyond that, obviously, the Albert Steel gathered steam quite quickly and it was so significant and and not just significant on 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 a revenue level or even scaling the business type level, but it was relevant on a cultural level. Uh, and with that came a huge amount of responsibility. And I'll be totally honest with you, I really felt it. And and growing up as a student of Australian music and seeing Alberts as the, uh, arguably the biggest institution in independent Australian music, uh, I had a couple of quiet freakouts during that, during, <laughs> during the deal negotiation phase during the due diligence phase um, and and I sat down with David Albert. I, I Maybe 
50 hours of, of coffees, I developed a serious caffeine habit uh, during the lead into the announcement of that deal. And a lot of it was just consulting him, um, you know, really learning as much as I could about their business, about their roster, about their people. Um, the nature of that deal is quite interesting in that there was a there was an acquisition component, but there's also an administration component with the ACDC catalog and the Easy Beats catalog. Um, so arguably <laughs> the two most important catalogs in the history of Australian music. Uh, so from my perspective, it was really important that I that I gained a, a, a deep understanding of, of of that company and what they've done and that legacy and. Um, so we obviously wanted to give that the gravity that it needed when we announced the deal. Um, during that process, we, we took over one part of this building and then suddenly it seemed like our company needed to grow in terms of uh, the amount of staff that we could bring on board. So we, we, we were quite lucky in that the adjoining um, suite became available. So uh, yeah, up until now, and there's just been a pretty big build, man. You know, they, these things don't these things don't happen overnight, unfortunately. And it was a massive collaborative effort from the whole team here. So we were all really engaged on the design level. So we had our uh, we had our royalties manager, you know, sourcing the office desks, and we had our marketing coordinator sourcing um, chairs, and we had our uh, our head of sync out there chasing down boardroom tables. So. It was definitely a team effort, and I think I think when people come into the space, it's very reflective of the personalities of the people that work here, uh, and that was really important to me. So, so it's pretty exciting to be in a position now where we're properly situated in the space, and we're pulling together as a team. We're having these external meetings, and people really seem to think that the spirit they get from the people at BMG is reflected of the spirit of the office, which was the most important thing. Uh, that that's awesome, and I certainly sense that. Um, I want to ask you though, going back all the way to early Heath. Sure. <laughs> um, tell me about your first job in the music business, because I believe that was BMG, wasn't it? Uh, it was. It was. So uh, my first A and R gig. Uh, before that, I'd there's even there's even a pre story to that. So before that, my my love of the music business, I guess, formed. This would have been. I was in year 10 and it was work experience in Newcastle. Um, and I was, uh, my, my mum, my mum, I stopped, I, it was kind of funny. I'd, I'd made a pretty big commitment back at the age of about 13 or 14 that I wanted to get involved in music. Um, at that point, I was pretty much hell-bent on organising all ages shows, making posters, doing all that sort of stuff. That's what I really enjoyed doing. I turned every school project into a music-related uh, venture. I remember in art class we had to do a, a, an animation and I did a stop-motion claymation to a Stone Temple Pilots song <laughs> because it was the mid-'90s and that's what people did back then. Um, and while that was happening, I just basically engrossed myself in music and the music industry. And I was always a really good mathematician in primary school. In fact, I won an award and went to a maths camp, believe it or not. <laughs> that was fun. Uh, <laughs> um, and then I just stopped focusing on those things. And, and my mum said, look, I'm going to get you a uh, – I want you to have a maths tutor because you're not focusing on this thing that you used to be really good at. And she brought in a guy called Mark Hughes who, who unbeknownst to her, uh, was an absolute rock pig and he was the editor of a Newcastle street press called Concrete Press – 
And we'd go up into my bedroom in Newcastle every Wednesday night from six till eight. And my mum would think we were diligently working away at uh, maths tutoring exercises. But instead, I was pitching the idea of he and I doing a radio show together on an independent network called ZFM. I think at our peak, we had 15 listeners. It's pretty good. That's uh, pretty impressive. That's, that's probably fifteen more than we've got on this podcast. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so yeah, we we sat down and we worked on a radio show, and then he drafted me in to be an intern at his street press. And uh, I did a. I was transcribing Bobcat Goldthwait interviews from Police Academy um, and reviewing all manner of uh, local demo releases. Uh, while I was doing that, I just discovered a, a, a real joy in breaking down the songwriting process and, you know, I was always a pretty terrible musician myself going back to my days as the bass clarinet player in the Junction Public School Band um, and I'd, I'd always loved the power of music and I was always really impressed by people that could play music properly. Uh, so then I got into journalism, did a bunch of reviews, interviews, all that sort of stuff. And then that led me down the track of uh, wanting to try my hand at a and uh, I was actually the, I, I can't even remember my title, I think I was A&R consultant at the old BMG Records in North Sydney. Um, really enjoyed that job. So how did you get that job? I picked up the phone and I called every managing director in uh, Australia and told them that I'll do A&R for free. Um, wow. So, so and and... Credit to uh, the the former MD of BMG Australia, Red St John at the time. He took a chance, and and not only did he take a chance, but he agreed to pay me the princely sum of two hundred and twenty dollars a week, uh, which I was delighted with. That's awesome. And I thought I was absolutely balling. Um, <laughs> I remember my monthly paycheck came in, and it was a thousand dollars. And I, I remember just printing out my ATM receipt that I still have, <laughs> and I was just so impressed that I'd managed to uh, dupe somebody into paying me. <laughs> to do to do something music related, um, and that was a really great gig, and I learned a lot, and it was a it was a really interesting time in the music business. Um, it was essentially the dawn of Napster, and and how old were you then? I would have been twenty twenty one, okay, um, maybe twenty, I think. So you got that job, paid two hundred twenty bucks a week. Um, how much? Like how much autonomy do they give you? Did you were you able to just sign somebody? Like tell me about that. Okay, process. yeah. So it was a very brief period. Yeah. So um, basically, I came into the gig. Um, the premise at the time, the vines were really blowing up internationally. Uh, so there was a real spotlight on Australian rock and roll, which is you know just happened to be you know my my forte or what I thought was my forte. Came into the role, had a lot of support, had a lot of early early mentors. Um, including Ian Dicker um, from from Australian Idol, he was he was really great uh, to me. Went to an amazing BMG conference up in the Hunter Valley that I'll never forget. Um, but yeah, it was an interesting time because I I had joined the company at a time where Australian rock and roll was was essentially uh, the job description. You know, really get neck deep in that scene. Um, but as it turned out it was basically the dawn of the Australian Idol era um, at the time and strategically I was I felt like I was a bit of a square peg in a round hole um, and you know I'm not even criticizing the direction of the company at that time it was just probably I think I was the 
wrong person to be in that role, um, given that, as you would see over the next coming years, the company really shifted and had a very sort of strong pop focus. Um, and although I think I'm reasonably good at pop stuff now, I, w- I definitely wasn't then. Um, so I, yeah, I'd, I'd had a couple of things that I that I was excited about um, that just weren't necessarily going to fit into that system. Uh, and then I was uh, playing. And, and, and what were they? Uh, I'll, hold, hold with me. I'll <laughs> tell you those things. Um, so then I was playing a, uh, a touch football game on a Saturday morning with, uh, with Brett Oten, who, who was and is one of the most respected lawyers in, in the music business. And he, he said to me, how's everything going over there? And I said, I love the people. It's a really great company. Um, but I just feel like maybe the job description isn't necessarily aligned with my talents at the moment or what I thought were my talents. I hoped for my talents. I hadn't proven myself at all. Um, and he said, well, hey, there's a, there's, a, there's a publishing gig going at Universal. Maybe you should, should have a look at that. Um, I didn't know what publishing was at all. Um, but I thought it was a good opportunity and there was a lot more autonomy in that role. Um, so I, I resigned from BMG, got the gig at Universal and, and, and ended up signing the publishing of a bunch of bands that I was looking at at BMG Records and those, you know, notably Jet and Wolfmother were, were sort of two of those um, two of those early signings. So Wait, they, they, were they the first two you signed? Oh, my first three. My first deal was Jet. <laughs> my second deal was, was The Living End um, and they were on their third record, I believe, at the time, but their back catalogue was coming available. Um, and then the third signing was Wolf Mother, so it was so everyone. It, it was a blessed have, run. <laughs> everyone must have thought you were just an absolute genius. Well, it was to be honest. There was so much good luck in my. I think my first role at BMG, there was quite a lot of. I don't know if it was bad luck or just circumstance, but I think I came in at the wrong time of the company's development um, or their strategy. And then I think I came in at the right time of where Universal was at. Um, and and to be honest, uh, all of those early signings, I had no business knowledge whatsoever. I, I didn't really even know how to make money out of publishing. I was just finding bands that I really liked and then aggressively negotiating and making sure that we got the deal. Um, so you would suggest advances that you didn't know the implications of? To a degree, yeah. Uh, certainly not. Not to the level that I do now. Um, I was flying blind a little bit, but I remember, and possibly it could have been my record company background, I was looking at publishing advances and I was like, this seems pretty reasonable. This, this seems okay. The songs are really good. And, you know, admittedly, when you, you the first demo you have is, are you going to be my girl or woman? <laughs> it's not hard to get excited. And it, admittedly, I've always been someone that I, I try to be as uh, – I try to be as I, I describe my style as being sort of um, aggressively well researched. Um, back then, I was aggressive and not well researched, but uh, the success of those projects really created a platform for me internally where people trusted me. Um, and and to be fair, I, I think I did have a lot of good luck back then, and and quite a lot of good fortune. And I, I sort of wonder in, in the A&R game, it's, and when I chat to young A&R people or people wanting to get into the A&R game, patience is one of the biggest virtues that you can possibly have in this game. And I, I sometimes wonder, had I have not had you know, three really exciting projects to rip into in the first six months of the job, um, it's not uncommon in this 
particular part of the industry to have some barren spells for 12, 18, 24 months. And I, I, I sometimes wonder how I would have responded. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty self-critical. Um, and I wonder had I have had to stick it out for 18 months, 24 months, coming from a journalism background where I found that job quite, you know, quite simple and no disrespect. <laughs> I'm not it, a journalist. To, <laughs> to, me, I, to me, I sort of, okay, you, you listen to music, you respond to it, you write about it, um, and, and you try and get people to engage with that content. Um, but there was sort of a, there, was, there were challenges associated with trying to discover something amazing. What if something amazing doesn't pop up for 12 months? And that happens. Mm. You know, it, it's happened to me throughout my career. I've had I, I I usually have bursts. I usually have moments where, you know, you sign three or four really exciting things in a year, and then the next year just nothing excites you. Um, and the key the the key to you know whatever you know I don't I'm even reluctant to call it success. That the key to any sort of enduring employment I've had in my career has come from uh, the ability to just know when there's no deal to be done. Um, you know, know when to hold them, know when to fold them kind of thing. Um, and I think the luxury, I think I was given the luxury of time by a, a, a series of uh, fortunate events. <laughs> yeah, I think you're being too humble because you don't, You, I mean, you were at Universal for what, 10 years? Uh, nearly 14. 14 years. Yeah. So I don't think I must that, look young. Thank that you. Does, <laughs> that does not happen by accident. So I think you, if, if you had those early successes and then none others, then you could say it was yeah. luck. But, but <laughs> I, I think you're being a bit humble. And I want to talk about that time at Universal. Mm. Um, you were an A&R director there, is that I correct? Was, yeah. yeah, well, um, I started as uh, A&R assistant and then... A few years later, I was head of A&R and then a few years after that, I was director of A&R. So, yeah, I kind of worked my way up the ranks there. Yeah, awesome. And and with an org chart like Universal, um, you as an A&R director had a team of like two or three, I guess, that reported to you. Yeah, um, versus Now you've transitioned to as a managing director at BMG and you have the whole org chart of the whole company sure. in Australia come to you. Yeah. So tell me about that transition and the, the challenges that you faced both at Universal with their mm-hmm. structure as opposed to BMG now. I mean, it would have its own challenges. For sure. Structure, yeah. So. yeah, definitely. Um, and, and look, I, I guess the... There's sort of an interesting tale there in that I'd um, I'd really loved my time at Universal and it was it was a company that was very good to me uh, for a long time and I think the beauty of my relationship with 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 my boss at Universal my team at Universal was that they essentially left me to my own devices um, you know I don't think that would have been the case if I didn't have that early success so I think I was quite lucky in that way that. I'd sort of forged a bit of a ninja path for myself where I could go out and do stealthy meetings and people assumed that I was actually doing work. And Finding not, another job. Not, yeah, not playing video games, <laughs> uh, which admittedly I did do from time to time. Um, but the issue I had was that, you know, to be brutally frank with you, I became sort of um, – I felt like I was I, – I know that you um, – I know that you had John Watson on, a, on an earlier podcast and I, I remember he's, him saying to me once that uh, I'm probably going to butcher this but it was something like there's a difference between having 10 years of experience and 10 years of the same year of experience and while I don't think it was 10 years of the same year of experience, definitely the last two or three, I started to feel like maybe I was on a treadmill a bit and 
uh, I was loving it. And I was loving working with the roster that, that we had here that I'm still super, super proud of. And, and I really enjoyed my time with the Universal guys. But there was a point there where I was like, look, you know, I, I need to do something else. I need to grow. Uh, you know, I need, I need an opportunity. Um, and at that point, BMG really represented the ultimate job for me. And I remember reading a, an article in Billboard back in, must have been early 2009 about this new gen company um, straight off the back of Spotify's launch, the same week actually, BMG and Spotify launched. Um, and I was just so blown away that a company had recognized something that that I'd been thinking for a while. And I didn't know that I was right. I didn't know that anybody else felt the same way, but I would quite often sit there at Universal and go, oh, why is there a separate A&R publishing person and a separate A&R records person? Why is there a separate A&R sync person and a separate A&R records, oh, sorry, separate sync records person? And I understand given the scale of that company, you have to segment a lot more. Um, but in a utopian world, I felt there was an efficiency uh, and just some creative strengths to having an all-in-one, under-one-roof operation. So when I read about BMG, I just thought, wow, this is, this is a company that in a lot of ways uh, represents the way that I would set up my own company if I was to leave Universal and start you know, Heath Music. I'll probably think of a better name than that. Um, but so, so when you announced, uh, one of the few things you did when you did announce BMG, you actually got a lot of criticism for saying that the music industry was broken. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that what you're talking about or was there a lot more to that when you said that the music industry was broken? Uh, yeah, it certainly didn't um, go down well in certain sectors and, and, and it wasn't meant to be sort of disrespectful or sort of brash. Um, but my feelings and, and certainly the broader feelings of BMG in a lot of ways is that a very sort of physically dominant uh, record business, um, a lot of overheads, um, low artist royalty rates, comparatively low artist royalty rates. For me, I'd always seen that as an opportunity for a company to come in and sort of redefine what they do and, and reshape the company for the modern world. Um, if you look at the, uh, I was chatting to, uh, to Zach Katz, the president of, um, uh, BMG US, and he articulated it really well. I was thinking of stealing his idea, but I, I figured I'll give him credit. Um, he was talking about, okay, if you look back over the last 60, 70 years, you've had four dominant players in the music business, uh, Sony, Warners, Universal, and BMG. And BMG was the only one of those companies that, that chose to disappear from the music industry, sell off its assets and reshape a new music company for a new world. The fact that BMG and Spotify launched in the same week would probably give you a, a fair indication of uh, BMG's view for the future and, and where we think people will be able to uh, monetize their creativity um, and if you look historically at what BMG is, is doing for our writers and our artists and, and just the level of satisfaction within the company, um, I certainly feel like I made the right decision. Um, that said, one of my favorite things about this company and, and yeah, the business is broken in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, you can try and slice it and dice it however you like, but you know, that's the way I feel. Yeah. Um, 
there are a, a number of things that the majors do really, really well. And I think if you break down each major in this country or the world really by records or by publishing, you can see that each of them are class leaders in different ways. Um, but therein lies the opportunity for a, for a company, which is essentially a startup still in BMG, just a you know well-backed startup. Um, there is the ability to sort of tap into class leading aspects of each company and uh, try and build on that and try and evolve that model. Um, but yeah, as far as the industry being broken, um, there are aspects of the industry that are broken. I feel as though maybe somewhere along the line, the artists have been forgotten about. And I think we're in a very heavy market share driven economy and I'm not entirely sure that that's the best way to go about things sometimes. I think we're seeing iconic artists being largely ignored uh, by, their, by their labels or their publishers um, because they don't necessarily have a cut on the latest Rihanna record, which, of course, you want as well. Uh, but if you look at BMG's international strategy and what we've been able to do, uh, th there's definitely been a sort of uh, growing sense of discontent with some aspects of the traditional record and publishing industry and we've been there to capitalise on it. And the fact of the matter is if the record industry wasn't broken in some way, there was no need for us to be here and we wouldn't be having the, the global success that BMG is having. And so when you left Universal to come to BMG, there was quite a lot of artists that seemed to come with you. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that was because of your personal relationship with those artists or was it because of this new model that you were able to offer? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I think you, you couldn't deny the the – the impact that a really good personal relationship can have. And I think that, that you know, any aspiring um, kids out there looking to get into the music business, most people that have had any level of uh, success would say that it really is a relationships business. But that said, I also think they're incredibly well-educated people with well-educated advisors. Uh, and I don't think anybody would have made the switch because they liked hanging out with me. I think they had to have some sort of belief in, in this new company. Um, early on, I think there was a huge leap of faith that a lot of major artists made uh, to jump over to BMG because really we had no infrastructure, we had no staff. Um, we were basically selling the premise of what BMG Australia would be. Um, and I guess for somebody who didn't have a personal relationship, that would have been a hard ask. I think it would have been a massive challenge to get somebody to believe in a vision from somebody they barely knew. So I think it worked in that respect. But at the same time, you know, the salesman's really only as good as the product they're, they're trying to sell. So um, that was the main reason I came to BMG because I wholeheartedly believed in this business model in a way that I'd never believed in a business model before. Um, and... You know, I, I would hope that, that, you know, I'm generally pretty enthusiastic, as you would know, when it comes to sort of going for something that, that I believe in or that the company believes in. Um, and, yeah, I, I actually felt like Superman in those early days because I was sitting in the mailroom at Penguin Random House. Uh, I turned up on day one, no phone, no computer, went down to JB Hi-Fi, went down to Telstra, hooked myself up and actually loved it because it was renegade style. And, and most people that know me, sort of know that I, I, I'm really motivated by 
having the odds against me <laughs> and and I, I I loved it and I think that any of the the criticism that was being leveled uh, at me or at BMG or at what we were trying to do was just going to be fuel um, for me and it's been a beautiful thing and as we've sort of accumulated staff along the way uh, I, I feel like we have a really progressive mentality in this company and people feel like they really belong and they really matter and um, yeah it, it 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 was a what was the question again sorry I went on a it rant was, there I forgot that's okay <laughs> I'm gonna I'll, read you I'm gonna read your iPad there <laughs> I want to ask you about something else actually I want to okay like, skip that so, so <laughs> as you've been speaking um we get this imagery of like you know startup bootstrapping getting your pennies together doing all that mm-hmm. and really launching this new music company but then I um, juxtapose that with you know, speaking to music lawyers and we're talking to artists and, you know, some of our artists are getting offers from major um, other major publishers sure. and labels and they're saying, hang on, hang on, let's not progress this further until we talk to BMG because they have big money. Yeah. So, um, you've developed this reputation for when you want to play, you really just blow all other offers out of the water. Mm. Is that reputation was that was that a strategy did you want that reputation or is that just your nature and your personality like when you want something you just go out and get it uh yeah look to be honest it's it's never really been about money uh anywhere that i've been in the past Uh, i wouldn't necessarily say that uh financially bmg is any more aggressive than i would have been at universal you know I, i don't i think the deals are sort of based on a very similar um because again, with A&R, there's so much belief in it. It's really about you projecting what you think this writer or this artist is going to do on a spreadsheet. And ultimately, you're, uh, you know, there's a huge amount of faith in that and you're doing forward projections and everyone I'm signing ever, I've assumed, are going to be bigger next year than they are this year. Otherwise, it's a bad deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so while it's true that BMG certainly has uh, significant backing, um, and, and, you know, being part of, you know, Europe's biggest media company has its advantages. Um, from my perspective, it's certainly not been a strategy to blow people out of the water. And I don't think, to be honest, I don't think we have in a lot of ways. I think if you look at, and, and without divulging financial details, we've, we've, we've actually offered less than some uh, of our competitors for certain deals. And, of course, in others we've offered more. Um, but our rate of actually getting deals over the line is arguably you know, the highest in the industry. Um, admittedly, it's a fairly small sample size because we've only been around for you know less than eighteen months. But um, and we also know, you know, I know where the shiny new toy in the cot. You know, and I know that has some value. I know that there's something um, interesting and there's something progressive. And particularly when you're dealing with interesting and progressive people, I know there's something really appealing um, about joining something new. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we, we are playing the long game on this thing and, and, and the vision for BMG and the vision for BMG Australia more specifically is to make sure that we create a really enduring company uh, with enduring revenues but more importantly than any of that is a company that's enduringly creatively relevant. And, and uh, look, I've always sort of thought, Publishing is a funny game when it comes to projecting somebody's future success because you look at, say you have an artist and they're doing a $50,000 development deal and the publisher signs that deal without a real strategy of how they're going to create opportunities for that writer. 
And some publishers, I think it's fair to say, will go out, give somebody $50,000 and they'll just collect the revenues that that artist or that writer generates off their own steam and they don't necessarily add anything to that process. Whereas sometimes you look at it and you go, well, hang on a second, if, if this passive publisher is willing to offer 50 and do nothing, then if we actually have objectives and we have a really compelling international network and we have opportunities like BMG's sound lab camps, which we can probably go into later, um, and a track record of having incredible international sync uh, activity, then, yeah, if we value it at 70, the thing is it's a safer bet at 70 for BMG than it would be for a, for a more passive competitor at 50 because we actually have the, the necessary means to plug that writer into to generate revenue. So for me, I've never been worried about a publishing advance at BMG. Um, and that's not to suggest that they're necessarily higher. I know in a lot of cases they're not. We've got some big deals that really you'd be surprised. The artist didn't want it. The writer didn't want an advance. They just want a creative partner. So, you know, you play each ball on its <laughs> merits. Um, but, I, you know, I'm not d- disappointed to hear that there is that sort of talk. I mean, I'm just glad that they're talking to BMG and then we, we can kind of sell them on what we do uh, when they get here. <laughs> um, I want to ask about the transition from Universal to BMG. Um, in my opinion, I don't think there was a they could have found a more ambitious and driven and perfect for the role person to do this. Thing. Thank you. <laughs> um, but how did it happen? Did you knock on their door? Did they knock on your door? Tell me how that, yeah. that worked. It's a cool story, actually. So um, I was actually over in LA at a Universal conference, and it was a great conference. Really enjoyed it. And and again, these are colleagues that I'd had for for 14 odd years. So I had a lot of personal relationships within that company. Um, while I was over there, just through a, a chance introduction through, through a friend, I was introduced to a guy called Thomas Scherer, who's the, uh, at the time he was the, basically the international head of A&R, German guy living in LA. Um, and now he's, he's recently been promoted to not only do that job but also head up the publishing operation for BMG US. Um, I was at the airport. He, he I, I sent him an email about a co-writing opportunity or something. I can't remember. It was sort of something sort of fairly vague. And then we just started this email dialogue. And then I just said to him out of nowhere in a pretty ballsy move, "Hey, what are you guys doing in Australia? I think I think your business could really work down there." Um, he sort of sent back a, a response that was uh, quite. Very pleasant, but but sort of quite guarded in that I think that there were plans afoot um, with BMG. You know, maybe maybe you know there was something bubbling away that he wasn't necessarily going to divulge to a competitor at Universal. Um, we kept talking. I remember getting to LAX and having a conversation with him on the phone when I was flying back, and I said, "Hey, look, if I can present a business model to you guys." Um, would it be, am I crazy? You know, is, is there an opportunity for me to help you guys launch your business down here? And he said, no, you're not crazy. Um, Thomas uh, and, and our CEO Hartwig are very, very close. And uh, Thomas is a bit of a creative visionary, as is Hartwig, um, who has a long and storied um, creative career in, in Germany behind him. And so I sat there on my iPhone notes, you know, the little yellow um, thing with that god-awful font, and I did a 10-point strategy. This is what I would do. This is what I think you should do. Um, No emojis in there. Um, 
but I just shot that off and I said, look, this is the bare bones structure. Um, if you, if, if you're interested, I'll actually give you something, um, possibly in Microsoft word, you know, I'll step it up. I'll make it a little more professional. Um, basically he and Hartwig had had a discussion about it. And then 24 hours later, I was actually, was it 24 hours later? It was that week. It was the ARIA awards and I was, uh, I was at the ARIA awards and I was kind of negotiating my, my BMG situation in the bathroom. Um, and, and I came out and then they'd sent me a contract and they basically said, okay, we think you're the guy and we want you to come on board and, and help set this thing up for us. And yeah, it was great, man. I like, I, I was ready for a new challenge and I was so excited by BMG's model. And to be fair, I do think that there were, any number of people and there's so many talented people in, in the music industry in Australia. So it, I don't think there was a shortage of options, um, but absolutely I pitched myself as the only option. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, and, and, and to be honest, it was that faith and their ability to turn something around um, so quickly and I just thought, look, the, these guys are, I like their way of doing business. I like their, I like their aggression. I like their spirit. I like the fact that the dialogue that I'd had with both our head of international A&R and our global CEO was only about music. It was only about creativity. Both of those guys were musicians themselves. Um, that's something I really love about BMG. My first, my first quote-unquote job interview, um, the US team had a company band in the um, boardroom and they were playing like Black Sabbath covers for me over the phone. Uh, and, yeah, I remember hanging up on that call and going, I'm going to be I, – I, like, I really like my job at Universal, but I'm going to be so depressed if BMG come to Australia and I'm not there. Oh, right. Yeah, that was my, really the, the defining moment. I hung up the phone I said to my wife, uh, I've got to get in on this BMG thing because I just feel like it is the right environment for me. And, 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 and that's the encouragement that I could give to anybody. I know a lot of your listeners are, are sort of aspiring music business people is it's all about finding the right fit for you. And for some people, Universal is the perfect fit. Um, for some people, Warner's is the perfect fit. For some people, publishing is where they should be. Other people should be records, promotion, um, touring, management, uh, journalism, whatever. Um, but I think for the first time in my entire career, I sat down uh, day one at BMG and, and, you know, I had a cool office at Universal. You know, you've been to the office there. It's pretty impressive. Um, I had a great roster. I had great relationships. I had a really good little team, but one that I really loved. Um, but ultimately, I, I didn't necessarily see myself being there in 10 years. And BMG is the kind of company that, um, I, I just don't see myself leaving this company. You know, for the first time in my life, I'm just so happy uh, with with everything on a professional level. It doesn't mean we don't have challenges, but mm. when you have the, the support that we have uh, locally and internationally, I, I'm actually excited when we get presented with a new challenge. I'm like, oh, this is our first challenge. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first deal we didn't get. Great. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 actually remarkable, and I think a very rare thing that somebody finds in their career. Um, I want to ask you about the structure that you set up with the international office. So, sure. did they did they did you put your proposal through and say, hey, this is how much money I need to make it happen, mm -hmm. and they approve it, and then you just go, or is it kind of stage by stage, or like how how did yeah. that structure work? Well, it was stage by stage, so. Uh Essentially, when I came into the company, the initial strategy was all about organic growth. Um, 
the the Alberts acquisition, there'd been a long and storied relationship between Alberts and BMG. In a lot of ways, there's a lot of similarities between the companies. Um, so the Alberts deal then wasn't a case of you going, hey, can we buy you? It was kind of already in, in process. It Basically what had happened was there was an existing dialogue that had sort of simmered down mm. quite a bit. Um, and when I came in just through a, a number of um, – circumstances it it popped up on the on the table um and and it was definitely the most intense experience of my life and and as i said to you before just given the the legacy of that company yeah um, so was it intensely academic from an academic side of or no, both it was both uh, yeah. both because it was a completely new experience for me um you know bmg has been a very acquisitive company if you look at the company's uh deals that we've done with, you know, whether it's Rise Records or Infectious Records or Sanctuary or Mute or Cherry Lane, Bug Music, uh, you know, there's been a lot of large-scale acquisitions and in a lot of ways BMG, you know, it depends on the day you get me, but sometimes I refer to us as a major independent, sometimes an independent major, but probably the truth is sort of somewhere in between those two things. Um and yeah, so definitely acquisition was on the on the menu. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you have to have you have to have a willing seller. You have to have somebody who who sees the merits in in this new business. Um, and I guess the the one of the and and this is no secret. It was sort of you mentioned the Australian Financial Review interview, which was some of the some of the early press that we did, or some of the only press we did for BMG um, outside of the, the press releases around our artist and writer signings. Um, was just that that the family did not put the company on the market. You know, they didn't test the waters. They were looking for a company that that would be able to. Uh, manage all aspects of their business but do it in a way that ensured that as many of their staff as possible had had a gig um one of the benefits was because our local roster was so small uh, at the time and still you know i'd say still now is reasonably small their domestic roster would get the attention um that it needed and and yeah, it was a mission. It took a long time, but it's also one of the the and it was a team effort. There were so many people involved in getting that deal over the line, and we had Germans out here every second week. <laughs> um, you know, I know I know David in particular was doing a lot of traveling and a lot of calling, and um, you know, I'm I'm really happy that 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 we were able to get that deal over the line, and I'm also really happy to come in here every day and see you know half of our team that have come over from Alberts, and they're all really happy. And, and productive and they've all really adjusted to the changing nature of, of the demands on them. Um, going well, I actually want to ask about that. So, yeah. um, I mean, I've also been through some acquisitions with my company yeah. and, and there is a challenge in um, saying, hey, here is our culture. I know you've been a part of this other culture, but now you need to sort of come into the and, and, and sort of operate this way and sure. share a new culture. So, have you – was that challenging for you? Did you feel like it was disruptive in any way? How did you manage that mm-hmm. um, both from a staff side but then also from an artist side because the yeah. artists are were involved in an Albert's culture and they, sure. they had that relationship with their publisher and then now this new publisher comes along and how did you manage both the staff side of things as well as the, the writer side of things? Sure, and I think another important um, distinction to make there is it wasn't just Albert's publishing. We acquired a lot of their masters as well, a lot of mm. iconic um, 
iconic recordings by iconic Australian artists. Mm. Um, so just on the staff point, it was definitely something new for me and, you know, tracking back to my experience of managing such a minute team um, and thinking I was doing a reasonably good job at it um, to coming in and having just this really diverse range of people with a diverse range of skills because I'd only ever managed creative A&R people before. Um, so for me, that was a that was definitely a learning experience. I think I was really lucky to have had the guidance of the Alberts executive team. So uh, David Albert, Damien Rinaldi, Spence, and Ronan Ghosh, who's who's now working uh, with us as well. Um, these guys really ensured that I could hit the ground running with the team, and and they they went through and and sort of sold the virtues of all of their team members. And I think in a lot of ways we were really lucky in that Albert's had a very good people culture and people loved working for the company. But that also created a level of expectation that they were going to come over here and like BMG just as much. Um, so, again, another pretty sort of scary thought as a new MD in a new territory. Um, and the way we navigated that was to just ensure that the the – integration was as seamless as possible um, our Berlin team to where our head office is our head administrative office um, it's it's not really an unusual circumstance for them they've done that so many times and by all reports it's been a very successful integration from a from a international perspective and I chalk that up to just having really amazing adaptable people and and look I always said from the start I was like Albert's had an amazing workplace culture you guys had an amazing team you had a great executive team and and our mission is to not try and recreate that magic um i think you should look back at your experiences there as you know, really fondly and very positively um but our mission is to come out and create a new kind of magic you know i don't, I don't necessarily want to uh, try and compete with an old um, culture that everybody really enjoyed because we have to persevere and create a new culture. And I think because we've been, it, it's really great because David Albert is one of our biggest clients now. So he comes in all the time, you know, we're using Damien Rinaldi for a lot of our legal work. Um, so I think in a lot of ways we've preserved that culture and if we have just added a bit of a different element to it. So um, yeah, I think we were really lucky. I don't think we necessarily had um, the HR headaches that might be associated with something um, as large scale as this. Um, but I, you know, I, I sort of chalk that up to you know, acquiring a company that already had a really good culture. That's awesome. Um, writers, <laughs> do you want to talk about the writers? Oh, please. Uh, so, yeah, the writers were, you know, for me that was uh, I found less of a challenge on a personal level because, you know, that's the, that's the dialogue I speak. You know, I, I speak writer, artist, um, whatever that language is. So the think, HR side of yeah, thing is the new skill. This is totally, that's yeah. something I needed to develop and, and, and really sort of amend on the fly and, and certainly get better at, um, you know, as I started this journey, um, the writer side, I was never that worried about. And I, and I, I was so, um, excited by plugging and look our, our, our mission was, look, if we can deliver, a similar level of service on a domestic front um, and I think Albert's did a great job with all that stuff um, and then we can 
hopefully deliver a service upgrade on the international front. And that was really the mission that we we drummed into our creative team and 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 I think we've been, yeah, I think I think we've had a really good response from from the roster and people are really enjoying being part of BMG and they've still got a lot of their Alberts people here and um yeah, it's sort of uh, in a lot of ways, I kind of pinch myself sometimes when I come into the office and everyone's smiling and joking. We had a really good Friday afternoon drinks for some international visitors last week. And um, I don't know, it's probably the equivalent of having, you know, being a grandfather sitting around a table with, you know, your kids and your grandkids and your great grandkids and seeing everybody get along and smiling. It's sort of a, um, it's something you obviously work towards, but when you see it happening in front of you, it does fill me with a great sense of satisfaction and pride. Um, and yeah, and we want to build that over time. You know, we know we're early in our story and we want to absolutely respect the Albert's lineage and that's, that will forever be a big part of the BMG Australia story. Um, but at the same time, it's also important that we, we, we don't necessarily get hung up on nostalgia and we move forward with with this new business um in a way that 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 is uniquely bmg i want to ask you two questions about i always we always ask our guests this sure um, okay great what is your biggest mistake you made as an a&r person mm-hmm. um and now you've started this new company and you've had all these new experiences yeah. and as md what's been your biggest mistake starting yeah. a new company as an okay MD? all right cool um so the biggest mistake I made it as an A&R person sort of goes back to, I, I said earlier somewhat dismissively that, that I didn't really understand a lot of aspects of the music business, but I really understood music. Um, and I was pretty aware of the deficiencies in my game. And, and, and during that period, I, I went to grad school and did an MBA because I really wanted to sort of shore up the holes in my game so I could really sit down with a with a CFO and run through a PNL um and and be an active participant in that. I, I always wanted to be a you know, I didn't want to just be the quote unquote creative. Um, you know, I always had ambitions to do something a bit broader and I'm really glad I did that. But the biggest mistake I made, I think, was at a certain point there I kind of I think I I started to get too focused on the music business for at least a year there and I remember sitting at an awards night and and it was in the middle of the EMI terra firma stuff and I was so engrossed in the music business and I'd sit down every morning and and read the billboard highlights and um, I got really focused with charts and market share and I noticed a direct correlation with my performance as an A&R person and it wasn't positive. Um, I was noticing that I was starting to be less instinctive with the way that I evaluated deals and the way that I'd go out there and, um, you know, be aggressive with the creative um, aspects of the job. Um, So, yeah, definitely that was a year for me where I feel like I moved away from what got me to the industry in the first place and it was there was definitely some soul searching done and I sort of thought to myself, wow, the, the period that I knew the least about the music business was when I was most successful. And while I'm not advocating that people don't <laughs> learn about the music business, I think the lesson was I really listened to the music. You know, that was that was the key early on. I'd, it was the only thing I knew about. So I spent all my energy on listening to music and going, people are going to like this. Why? Because I like it. Um 
So I tapped back into that with the new sort of skill set that I had and, and combined a bit of a hybrid approach. And when I listen to music now, I don't think about charts. I don't think about BPM. I don't think about breaking down a song or doing that sort of, uh, that sort of analysis. Um, but what I do is I listen to the music if I fall in love with the music, I figure out a way to make the deal work. And, and, and that's been certainly uh, the biggest part of my evolution in the music business, you know, the ability to sort of absorb the industry stuff without it, letting it take over my ears, which, which can be a challenge, I think. And as an MD? As an MD. I think the biggest challenge uh, as an MD for BMG in particular, I think the – it's just the sense of responsibility, I think. Um, and so, what's specifically? Well, what's the biggest mistake you've made? Biggest mistake. It's a really good question. I'm probably going to need a bit of thinking time. Maybe, <laughs> maybe the the biggest mistake, and we'll, I guess time will time will will, will tell with this one, um, was uh, potentially not marketing BMG earlier. And I think that because we had a lot of delays uh, with our office build and, you know, now we're sitting down having all of our external client contact in our own premises and I'm seeing just how beneficial that is to the business to have people come and resonate with the space and resonate with the people on your home ground. Um, I, I kind of wonder whether maybe there was things that we could have done to accelerate that process potentially and... Um, but again, you know, I'm not really one to kind of dwell on the negative stuff. I also see unique opportunities in that as well because I think we've made a pretty convincing case. And, and, and if you look at what we've done over the past 12 months and one of the, the stats that I'm really, really proud of is that in the same year we, we, we picked up three of the top five highest earning international sync catalogs in ACDC, Jet and Wolfmother. And then in the same year, we also had three of the top five breakthrough artists at the 2016 Arias. Um, so, again, for me, they – I kind of – I don't want to say I, – I think everything good or bad that happened over the last 12 months led to a pretty impressive result, one that was probably even beyond my own expectations for the company. So, I could probably go through a number of things that we could have done differently, but then again, I wonder whether, you know, I think people like that renegade hustle as well at that time of the business. I don't think they'd appreciate it three years down the track and they're turning up to have a meeting with BMG and it's at another coffee shop. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not super, I don't really regret anything we've done. Uh, I guess in some ways you could consider it a mistake because now we've had to really aggressively push our brand, but I guess, you know, in a lot of ways, that might be a good thing that it's coming now because we've made a case for ourselves. You know, we're not selling an empty promise. We've already delivered. Thank you so much for your time, Heath. I've got one last question and yeah. that is simply, where is BMG going to be in 10 years? All right. So, the uh, the plan for BMG in 10 years, uh, hopefully I'm still here. Um, that would be that would be my number one personal plan. Uh, <laughs> I don't have any, any uh, ambitions to leave. Um, from a business perspective, uh, I think our goal in one year is the same goal as it is in 10 years in terms of our philosophy. And I think unanimously across BMG, the, the goal is to be the preferred partner of everybody. 
Um, and whether it's someone like yourself, whether it's an attorney, whether it's a, a, a manager, whether it's a producer, a writer, an artist. Now, is that ever achievable to be everybody's preferred partner? Very unlikely, but I think it's a really noble goal and, and one that I like our team to have at the forefront of their minds. Um, so, the 10-year goal would be to get closer to that goal than we are now. Um, on a more strategic level, I think we would definitely like to see uh, consistent revenue growth, consistent creative growth, and, and, and also create more jobs for Australian music. And I think that's a really important part of BMG's investment in Australia. And I think we've gone from uh, one person to 18 people in, in, in a little over 12 months. Uh, and, and I would hope that we'll continue to add to the headcount, create more jobs, create more opportunities. Um, and, and the other part of the business is to really, if you'll have a look at what BMG is doing internationally at the moment, there's a concerted effort to build the records part of the business. And I think, you know, publishing was a easier entry point for BMG because there are lower barriers to entry. Um, but I would argue that, uh, with the current digital environment being the way it is and BMG's amazing chart success last week. There were six BMG records in the top 40 in the UK for the first time. Um, So whether it's through further acquisition, which I'm sure will happen, uh, if you have a look at uh, BMG's acquisition of Broken Bow uh, Records out of Nashville, that was a pretty significant uh, investment in in country music from BMG. Um, So I think you're seeing more diversity in the genres we're representing uh, and, and certainly that is going to be an area of, of growth for the Australian business. Um, we've, we, we have just hired Craig Redfern, um, formerly of Universal. He also worked at uh, Moby's management company in the UK and he's come back to be our senior recorded music manager. Um, so Craig and I are working on a, on a number of really interesting projects and, and I would hope that, uh, we represent, uh, a compelling alternative to recorded artists as well as songwriters. So 10 years from now, I, I, I'd hope to see uh, BMG all over the charts and all over the stage at the ARIA Awards as well. Thank you very much, Heath. That was uh, very insightful and we appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Luke. Cheers, Luke.